welcome to Pause and Pray, a chance just to stop what we're doing, to pause, to pray. Uh, we are resurrecting what we did in the first lockdown, because uh, of course normally we would be having a midweek communion service at St John's. Uh, we're unable to be in church at the moment, so we're resurrecting this short space in the week just to take time to stop what we're doing, uh, to reflect on scripture and to pray. And Today we're starting a new series going through the Gospel of Mark uh, and we're just going to go through it little by little and in fact it's going to take us the rest of the year, I've worked out, uh, just looking at small passages at a time. Uh, so this will be something that we can do as a, as a whole church uh, or whoever you are just tuning in, watching and wanting to just take this moment to, to stop and reflect uh, and look at the Bible. Uh, so we're going to be going through Mark's Gospel in short segments, uh, looking at a little bit each time, uh, and then pausing to think about how that impacts our own lives uh, and spending a moment in prayer. So today we begin with Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through to 8. Of course, as we're looking at this, uh, you might just want to get a Bible, open the Bible at the passage in front of you. Um, of course, you might want to get a coffee or something and just sit down and just take some space out to really look at God's Word and to see how, it, how God wants to speak to you through His Word today. I'm reading from Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with the leather belt around his waist, his waist, and he ate locusts of wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. As we look at this passage together, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Mark's gospel, this short, punchy gospel about Jesus, but written for your church. And we pray that as we think about these words, that your Holy Spirit would make them alive in our hearts and our minds, and you would speak to us as we look at this together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever had the challenge of trying to give a title to a piece of work that you've done. Um, I'm sure writers struggle with this quite a lot when they've written something, maybe an article or or perhaps uh, authors who've written a book, they come up with a title. Uh, and of course, if you're successful and make it to the publishing world, quite often publishers will, will override whatever ideas that an author has come up with and come up with their own title uh, that they seem is more 
relevant or engaging, uh, or perhaps just different for a different audience. Uh, like famously, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was changed for American and Indian audiences to be Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, just because of the way uh, people would have uh, understood the word philosopher. There are, of course, some quite well-known examples of titles uh, that we wouldn't recognise today. Um, Lord of the Rings, the first volume of The Lord of the Rings was called The Return of the Shadow. Uh, and Jane Austen's uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh, I believe, was originally titled as First Impressions in uh, an early draft of that book. Now, Mark's Gospel, these opening words, uh, form much more uh, of a title to his Gospel than uh, what we might think of as just the beginning of his book. Most scholars, in fact, think that these opening words, the, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is much more a title. And uh, actually the Gospel begins really in terms of his account begins with verse 2. So the idea that these words are a title, I think, make them almost uh, more important to dwell on and to think about more closely. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First of all, it's interesting that Mark calls it the beginning of the good news, not just uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. After all, Mark wrote an account of Jesus' life which ended in his death, uh, a pretty whole account of Jesus' life, certainly his public ministry. Um, why does he call it the beginning and not just the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, perhaps there is a theological reason why he chooses to use that word beginning. Because after all, Jesus' life and ministry, uh, while his public life and ministry ended with his death on the cross, the good news that Jesus brings did just begin with him. And Mark sees this good news as continuing well after Jesus' death, through the Holy Spirit, uh, through the church. Uh, and in fact, this good news hasn't ended. Uh, it began in Jesus and it still continues to this very day. Now, this word good news comes from uh, a Greek word, one Greek word uh, called euangelion. That's where we get the word evangelical from. And this word has, uh, well, it might have been somewhat taken over uh, by referring to certain groups of churches or, or certain church identifications. Actually, at its heart, the word simply means uh, an announcement of good news. Um, and it was used to announce you know, victory uh, announcements where there was a military conquest and there was some good news to announce that that latest conquest was successful. Interestingly, it was used by the Roman Empire to make these these royal announcements about good news. There's a, an inscription that says the Evangelion of the birth of Caesar Augustus, who was also interestingly identified as Son of God. That's how they called him. Uh, so this word, uh, an announcement of good news, it's, it's like a, a royal press release, if you like, a, a proclamation, an announcement of good news to tell the world. Uh, and it has political overtones to it. 
It's suggesting that because this good news has come, the world, as you know, it will be very different because of this good news that we are announcing to you. And so Mark seems to uh, mimic this royal announcement with his title of his gospel. It is a good news announcement of Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. What Mark is saying is that we're, we're in this new era. We're in this era where Jesus has arrived. And the world will be very different because of this good news announcement. And then the story, Mark's story of Jesus, then begins. And it begins with this fascinating figure of John the Baptist. Uh, And John was someone who was called to prepare the way. And Mark sees John as fulfilling these words from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was someone who who was called by God to prepare the way for Jesus, to announce Jesus' arrival as king. Uh, And that language of Isaiah was was a kind of a royal proclamation. Uh, part of the imagery of these verses is, is people preparing a way, a physical way, a physical path, direct through to uh, the city that the king had conquered uh, so that they could take their place, take their place on the throne. That imagery is behind this use of the word way. But John wasn't there to uh, physically prepare a way to prepare the roads up leading up to Jerusalem and to the palace there. Rather, his was a preparing the way in people's hearts and minds to receive Jesus the Messiah. And it's really interesting how he does it. John is, he's not uh, in Jerusalem. He's not where all the, the powerful people are. He's not at King Herod's palace or the Roman Imperium. He's in the wilderness. Uh, he's preaching about justice. He's challenging authorities. He's living a very simple, ascetic life with, uh, to be honest, quite an odd diet. John is doing things very differently. And perhaps it's because John is trying to prepare people for the kind of kingdom that Jesus will bring. One that will be very different from the kind of earthly kingdom that people are used to, which is all about power and prestige and status. And John is a fascinating figure. Uh, Clearly he was very charismatic. Crowds uh, from the whole countryside came out to see him. Uh, Clearly his preaching was very powerful uh, as people flocked to hear him preach. And he was radical in his choice of lifestyle and uh, fearless in confronting authorities And he had this uncompromising message, preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, repentance uh, is one of these words, I think, these days that is overloaded with kind of religious overtones and uh, people sometimes switch off when they hear it. Uh, I wonder if this word is perhaps 
either misunderstood or perhaps we overuse it a little bit, uh, simplify it in our words of in our prayers of confession. But actually, repentance literally means to turn around. That's what the word means in the Greek language: to turn around, to turn and face another direction. It's almost like a complete conversion when you're thinking about your own life and the direction of travel that your life is heading. Repentance was life-changing. And perhaps a better way of imagining repentance is to think about people whose lives have dramatically turned around. Some of the stories that you hear about people who have led a, maybe a life of crime or addiction and they've turned their life around and they're facing a completely different direction. That's what repentance is all about. And people came uh, to John to be baptized by him. They confessed their sins. And then baptism, which again, literally just refers to uh, immersing, they immersed themselves in the River Jordan, uh, symbolic of being washed clean from their sins. And symbolizing this repentance, this changing their life around changing their hearts, changing the direction of life, and turning towards God. Uh, River Jordan, of course, is a, a hugely significant uh, within the life of the people of Israel. It had, uh, as well as just being the main channel of water in Palestine, it had real historic significance uh, for the people of Israel. It was, it was the River Jordan that they crossed to enter into the Promised Land. Uh, they would be familiar with stories like Naaman, uh, who washed himself, immersed himself in the River Jordan seven times to be cleansed from leprosy. Perhaps all this is in mind and part of the symbolism of baptizing and for them to baptize themselves in the River Jordan and to be immersed and to rise up to enter into a new way of life. Of course, the people did this and they came to John, um, perhaps due to his charisma, the power of his preaching, many of them thought that perhaps he was the Messiah. But no, no, his, his preaching, his proclamation uh, was this. The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this was what John came to do to prepare the way for the Lord, to help people turn their lives around, uh, to prepare their way to receive Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, and in a, another one, in John's Gospel, John is quoted as saying, you know, he must become greater and I must become less. And for me, John leaves us a wonderful example that our role in helping prepare the way for the Lord is to point people to Jesus, the Messiah, to point people away from ourselves and for what we might be doing or what we might be thinking and pointing them to Jesus. John was someone who in his great humility was very able to do this. And also, while we're in a period where the world seems pretty devoid of good news, we need to be reminded that the we are still in this era of good news, this announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
is as relevant today as it was then. It is still a good news announcement. And this good news continues. It continues as God is still bringing in his kingdom. His kingdom that has come partially has not yet been fulfilled. And of course, uh, as Christians, we wait, we long for that day where God will reveal his kingdom in all its fullness. We're in the season of Epiphany where we're thinking about God's kingdom coming and we're thinking about how God makes himself manifest in the world. And so as we think about this passage, perhaps we can think about how might God make himself manifest in our own lives? How can we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive him? Are there things that we need to repent of? Are there directions of travel in our life that we need to that we need to change, that we need to redirect our lives and face a different direction, turn away from something and turn towards Christ, towards Jesus the Messiah and his kingdom. And so as we think about these words of Mark's gospel, as we think about John the Baptist, let's just take a moment to allow God to speak to us, to speak to our own situations and see what God has to say to us today. Take a moment to be quiet, and then I'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came. And this good news announcement is as relevant as it was for Mark, uh, as, as, as relevant for us as it was for Mark. And we pray that we would remember, hold on in faith and hope to this good news. And in the season of Epiphany, open our eyes to recognize your Holy Spirit in the world to see the good news that is happening around us. Help us to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, to play our role in preparing the world to receive you as King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.